This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Then, we'll close the week Friday with a message from Alistair titled, Revival Soul. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Now, here's Alistair Begg on Today in the Word radio. Good morning. It's nice to see you. Saw some of you going out into the freezing cold last night for your uh, PCMs, um, which I believe are practical Christian ministries. And I hope they were intensely practical, and I hope they were Christian. And uh, I don't know if it's by accident or providence, but I see that someone has chosen to drape a Union Jack right on the front row here for me, which is really very nice. I do appreciate it makes me feel at home. Of course, I'm at home with my sister here from Trinidad because Trinidad is uh, part of the British Commonwealth. But you guys don't know a lot about that, so I won't go into it. Uh, Just to clear up the record, of course, you know, the American Wars of Independence were just uh, one group of British people fighting against another group of British people, and then the winners called themselves Americans. So... uh, with apologies to your history department. First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. And we have dealt, in fact, you could summarize the previous two mornings in one phrase. Peter has been saying, don't worry, be humble. Don't worry, be humble. Actually, he's saying, be humble, don't worry, but if that helps you to remember it. He encouraged us to cultivate humility and then was encouraging us to cast our anxiety. And when we come to verse 8, he's giving us insight as to how we may conquer our enemy. And what I'd like to do this morning is, in verses 8 and 9, identify our enemy, discover our activity, and then realize this experience of solidarity to which he refers at the end of verse 9. It is perfectly all right for a Christian to have an enemy. Indeed, every Christian has an enemy. And so that we would be in no doubt whatsoever as to the identity of this enemy, 
He is described for us on numerous occasions throughout the Scriptures, and nowhere more succinctly than here towards the end of Peter's first letter. The fact that the believers to whom Peter writes had an enemy should really serve as a great encouragement to them, and ought in turn to serve as an encouragement to us, because the very fact that the evil one is the enemy of the believer is a reminder of the radical transformation which has taken place in the life of the child of God. Because we were once darkness, and now we have become light in the Lord, therefore we are to live as children of the light. And since we now live in the light, what fellowship does light have with darkness? None. And what fellowship does the kingdom of the devil have with the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is absolutely none. Peter has already made this clear in the second chapter, the ninth verse, where he has described the great change that has taken place in their lives. And when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he reminds them very clearly of this same transformation. It's important for us to remember this in a time when uh, there would seem to be at least an incipient drift towards the notion that when you become a Christian, all that happens to you is that you add Jesus to your life, so that you just continue the way you were, you continue all things as before, but you simply got the Jesus package. Wherever that notion comes from, it certainly doesn't come from Ephesians, where Paul magnifies the wonderful grace of God and reminds those to whom he writes, you used to live when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He says, this is the realm in which you lived. But you have been redeemed from that. You have been transferred from one dimension into another dimension altogether. He says in uh, one of his letters that we have been raised to the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. In other words, we have been radically changed. It's not that we were once irreligious and we became religious. Jesus made that perfectly clear to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, when they said, hey, we have Abram as our father. You know, we've got everything okay. And Jesus says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. You obey your father, who is the devil, and he's the father of lies. The fact that you are religious, he said to the Pharisees, in no way qualifies you for activity in the kingdom of heaven. And so it is this morning that as our world has awakened to another day, and in Hong Kong, there are already a good few hours ahead of us, 12 or so. Men and women, wittingly or unwittingly, are carrying out an agenda. And they're actually carrying out the agenda of the evil one, the prince of the power of darkness, the prince, the spirit that is at work in men and women. Therefore, when somebody is redeemed, a number of things happen simultaneously. Not only are our sins forgiven, not only are we adopted in the, to the family of God, not only are we raised to the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, not only are we reconciled to God in Christ, but the same grace which reconciles us to God antagonizes us to the evil one. And instantaneously, 
we are involved in what the Westminster Confession of Faith refers to as a continual and irreconcilable war. We are now introduced to a dimension of living as a result of having been made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. So far from spiritual warfare and awareness of the battle, our sense of being buffeted, far from that calling into question the nature of our faith, there is a sense in which spiritual warfare is the very indication of our faith. For the evil one's onslaught and attack, having been unable to keep us from Christ, is such that he would like to muddy up the waters to spoil the relationship, to diminish our effectiveness in walking with Christ. Until we understand that, we will never really be able to make much sense of what is going on in our lives. Now, notice that the identity of this enemy is made perfectly plain to us. He is described just as an enemy. The word in Greek is antidikos, which means one who is an opponent in a lawsuit. If the Holy Spirit is the counsel for the defense, our advocate with the Father, then the devil is the prosecuting counsel. And in the law courts, as it were, of our spiritual pilgrimage, the Holy Spirit in Christ pleads our case before the Father. Meanwhile, the evil one is, as John records him in Revelation 12, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them night and day before God. So while we have a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us, at the same time we have an accuser. And Peter is perfectly clear as he draws his letter to a close that if these young and scattered Christians are going to make headway in their Christian lives, then it is imperative not only that they live in humility, not only that they deal with anxiety, but also that they understand the nature of adversity. This enemy is malicious in his accusations, and he is false in his charges. He is identified here as the devil, diabolos, from which we get our world diabolical. His name means slanderer. And he slanders God to men, saying God isn't like that. He slanders men to God, and he slanders men to men. And I'm using men generically. In other words, it is his whole business to create confusion, to confuse men about God, to confuse and to destroy relationships between those who are in harmony with one another. So his identity is an enemy, and he is a diabolical enemy. His strategy is also described for us. He prowls around. Now, if you remember the opening chapters of the book of Job, you'll remember that God speaks to Satan, and he says to Satan, where have you come from? And the reply in Job 1-7 is, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. A graphic picture. And so we have a picture of this antagonist, this accuser, as one who is constantly traversing back and forth, looking for potential victims. He's restless in his search. And only the foolish and only the naive 
will regard this accuser as a large dog who is to be patted on the head or to be played with, rather than recognizing him to be what the Bible says, namely, a roaring lion. He roars, as do lions, to intimidate their prey and to make it perfectly clear to all of his rivals that he's the king of the jungle. He's not the king of the swingers, which you will remember from Jungle Book. That's, the, that's that big orangutan, I remember. I'm the king of the swingers. Remember that? Well, you've got to get the video. The Jungle VIP, okay? But the lion, he roars and he roams, and he is constantly on the search. Now, I want to say something to you, young people. Number one, don't give the devil any more attention than he's due. Number two, don't give him any less attention than the Bible says we ought to give him. Face facts, young folks. There's a war on. There's a war on. You haven't come to some happy camping ground since you committed your life to Christ. You haven't joined in some kind of little uh, Tinkerbell trail pilgrimage through the flowers and the trees and the streams and the rivers. You suddenly realized, hey, there's something going on here. This is cosmic in its dimensions. This is brutal in its effectiveness. I need to understand how to deal with this. And when the lion comes, he comes to devour. He doesn't toy around. He doesn't play the way cats play with chipmunks, disgusting little creatures. Not the chipmunks, the cats. I don't know enough about animals to know, you know, I'm sure they're not allowed to be called vermin, and I get letters now from cat lovers, but those things gross me out. I mean, whoever said they come and they bring them on your front doorstep and they, they flick them around and play with them and mess with them, and the poor little chipmunks got their heads chopped off and they're lying there. Okay? I'm not impressed with that junk. Now, when you get higher up, you get higher up the range, the lion, he's just... just chew the thing up. Just eat it up. Now, here's the facts of the matter. The devil is out there. He loves just to chew you up. He wants to eat you for breakfast. Do you understand that? Now, he comes to undermine your confidence in the Bible. He comes to say, as he said in the Garden of Eden, did God really say that? He loves to get Bible college students, and I went through Bible college with them, who after they were into it five or six uh, goes around, had decided that Genesis 1 to 11 really had no real uh, foundation whatsoever, had decided that Boltman was probably right, and uh, that Schweitzer was probably right, and that the quest for the historical Jesus was a valid quest, and that somehow the New Testament letters had all been fabricated and so on, and suddenly they found themselves being eaten by the evil one, as he undermined their confidence in the Scriptures. He comes to do that. He comes to destroy you morally. He comes to beat you in the moral arena of your life. 
He comes to undermine your confession. He comes to tell you that you can be an effective pastor and a moral disaster zone. He comes to tell you that you can sing in the chorale and that you can at the same time be immoral in your activities and there's no problem. He comes to disintegrate your faith. And he does not come, as you well know, wearing black and carrying a fork and having smoke coming out of his nose. He masquerades 2 Corinthians 11 as an angel of light. Did you ever dance with the devil in the pale moonlight? Remember that? Big smile. Ha, ha, ha says everybody. What a spurious, foolish, stupid idea. Nicholson knows it isn't a stupid idea, but he's happy for the hordes to laugh as the evil one continues his leering, filthy, dirty work. He is the antidikos. He is the enemy. He is diabolical as an enemy. His strategy is a roaming, devouring strategy. And get this, his destiny is already sealed. He is done. Checkmate has already been established at the cross of Jesus Christ. He is chained like a large German shepherd to a stake in the front yard so that no matter how much the German shepherd may make growling noises and scare the postman, as long as the postman keeps his eyes on the stake, he knows that the chain holds him to that stake. And the devil has been chained to a stake, a Roman gibbet at Calvary, and he is unable to do beyond what God and his sovereign purposes may permit him to do, even as is unfolded in the experience of Job. Therefore, do not let us fall into the notion, which I hear increasingly in our day, that the devil made me do it, and I don't have any control over that. Yes, you do. Every sin is an inside job. Every sin is an inside job. The devil comes, he's outside, and he brings the appealing sounds and sights and opportunities, and he says, don't you fancy doing this? Wouldn't you like to have that? Come on over here with me. So what does he appeal? He appeals to that dimension in our lives, whereby although sin no longer reigns in my life, it remains in my life. And therefore, he seeks to zero in on that internal mechanism whereby something inside of me says, yes, I think I'll follow after that. I don't want to run ahead of my message, but you need to learn to bomb the landing strips in your life to prevent the devil and his dirty jumbo jets from landing right on your runway. And he can't land unless you turn those lights to green and bid him welcome. So don't give him any more credit. 
than the Bible says is right. But don't be so naive as to think that everyone else except you is in the battle. If you want to read about his destiny, read Revelation 12, 9, Jude 6, Hebrews 2, 14. Now, I've spent longer on that than I intended. But anyway, let's go then to what our activity should be. If we have this enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and we are the potential someone, what are we supposed to do? Well, he gives it to us very clear. First of all, he says, you need to stay awake and stay alert. That's uh, the first sentence. Be self-controlled and alert. There is a danger that verse 7 creates a kind of dreamy carelessness. It's one of those uh, refrigerator door verses, isn't it? Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's kind of, that's nice. And it is nice. It's good. But he immediately follows it with this direct call to activity. Now, don't fall asleep, he says, listening to praise 43 or whatever we're at now, you know. Don't fall asleep for that. Stay awake and stay self-controlled and stay alert. Two incisive imperatives. He's already addressed this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Chapter 4 and verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled. In other words, casting all our anxiety upon the Lord Jesus does not absolve us from the duty of personal diligence. As one of the Puritans' writers said, the moment slothfulness begins, that moment dangers stand thick about us. It's a good quote. The moment slothfulness begins, that moment dangers stand thick about us. From this pulpit in years gone by has stood one by the name of Alan Redpath. What a great saint of God. How powerful in ministry, how effective and useful, and how many of us either by book or by word or by example have cause to praise God for his life. I certainly do. And I can remember listening to him on one occasion as he spoke to a group of young people, and he said, young people, let me tell you the first victory that you need to get in your lives. And then he said, you need to get blanket victory. And I thought he meant a kind of overall victory, but he was actually talking about blankets as on a bed. And he said, if you cannot get victory over the blankets in your bed to get up in the morning, to be alert, to be self-controlled, to be about the business of the day, then you will never get victory even beyond that at all. And I was sitting there as a student, remembering how much I like to lie in my bed to the very last minute. And I say, no, I think that's crazy. I, I think he just made that up. But the fact of the matter is, the devil finds work for idle hands and lazy bodies and ill-disciplined people. And the moment slothfulness begins, the dangers stand thick around us. That's why we sang the hymn, 458, I think it's the second verse. The third verse, leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Let me ask you this morning, do you have unguarded places? Do you have unguarded places? If you have, you know, and God knows, and probably the person next to you doesn't know. And it is in that unguarded dimension of your life that the evil one comes to fire his flaming darts. 
Not necessarily the same for the person next to you. That's irrelevant right now. Leave no unguarded place. And do not please live with a prevailing notion that somehow or another you are helplessly adrift on the sea of life, unable to stem the tides of evil, unable to arrest the drift in your own thinking. That is just not true. Some years now since I was here, so I can reuse the illustration, I hope. And if not, I'm just about to. The chaplain to the Navy group down in Portsmouth in England years ago was talking in the canteen with a group of young sailors. And they were telling him, Chaplain, you know, if you lived in the real world instead of in your little cardboard closet in which you live, then you would understand that we, the sailors on the sea of life, we just can't control how all these things happen to us. I mean, we, we can't control the books we read. If you were out at sea all this time, you'd read those books. We, we can't really control our language. We are just swept along by the tides. He says, hey, guys, he said, put down your coffee for a minute and come outside. So he takes them outside, and he shows them the bay there at Portsmouth. And as they look, they see these sailing ships plying back and forth. And then he gave them this little rhyme, which is so good. One ship goes east, one ship goes west, by the self-same winds that blow. It's the set of the sails and not the gales that determine which way they go. And the issue this morning for you and for me is the set of our sails. How do you set your sails up when you go out of an evening? How do the girls in this community dress in order to help the guys in this community set their sails towards purity and right thinking and right living. John Stott said, It is one thing for you girls to make yourselves attractive. It's another thing for you to make yourselves deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference, and so do we men. The guys are going to have to set their sails the way they guard their eyes, the way they guard their minds. But you girls have got a responsibility, too. How it must have cost Peter to write this down, because after all, Jesus told him the very same thing, remember? Do you remember what he said to them with the rest of the disciples? He said, watch and pray so that you fall not into temptation. Peter did neither and fell slap-bang into the middle of it. Having learned his lesson, having been restored, having given himself up to the cause of Christ, he now writes, as many of us do, from the lessons of the failure of our past in order to help others who will take from us the baton of faith in the great relay race of life so that others who follow us will not make the same mistakes as did we. Therefore, he says to them what Christ has said to him, be self-controlled and alert so that you can mount your own resistance movement. It is interesting, is it not, 
that while believers are urged to run from many things in the Bible, we're, we're urged to run from immorality, to run away from idolatry, to, to run from false doctrine, to run away from the desire for riches, to run away from the evil desires of youth. Nowhere are we advised to run from the devil. We're not told to run from the devil. We are told to resist the devil. James 4, 7, and he will flee from us. And all of your studies in Ephesians 6 underscore this for you. No armor for the back, because we're going to face him head on. Only a breastplate of righteousness for the front. Only the stuff that would give us enough to take him right on. Standing firm in the faith. Notice that. Resist him. How do you resist him? You stand firm in the faith. How do you stand firm in the faith? You know the faith. How do you know the faith? You know the Bible. How do you know the Bible? You read the Bible. You memorize the Bible. You store the Bible. You absorb the Bible. You think the Bible. You live the Bible. And one of the greatest threats in the late 20th century in American Christianity comes on multiple levels to threaten the conviction of the present generation regarding the authority and dynamism and usefulness and power of this book. And you can come through four years of Moody Bible Institute, and you don't know anything more of this Bible than five verses that you learn to be able to do your PCM. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Revelation 3.20, John 10.10, John 3.16, Romans 10 and 9, and you're done. And all the rest went through your head like a sieve, and you finished the class, and you flushed it out, and you went on your way. You think you're going to stand in the battle? You've got rocks in your head. Listen, loved ones, get in this book. Love it, learn it, and live it. My longing is that every young person would have a Bible in their hand, a Savior in their heart, and a purpose in their life. And surely that must be part of the great cause of Christ here at Moody Bible Institute. Well, I got a little bit worked up there. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get into that. We've got to stop this. All right. We don't have time to go back to Matthew 3. How did Jesus deal with the tempter? With the book. Every time. It's written. It's written. It's written. Young people don't know how to say it's written because they don't know what was written. So you've got to read it, learn it, live it. Finally, think of the precious relationships which are expressed here, this sense of solidarity, something that we in the West can only read and wonder about, at least in this generation— we can go back in Western culture and realize the application of this. There are people represented in this body this morning who, when they read First Peter 5, 9, and they read the phrase, you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings, that means myriad things to them. To us, it may mean, hey, it must mean something. Loved ones, I just want to say to you this morning that the experience of the believers throughout the world and throughout history— confirm the truth that Jesus espoused. Namely, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And as we enjoy the security of peace, we might ask ourselves the question, how good are we at a seizing the opportunity which peace affords? Are we storing up our faith for a day yet to come? 
Are we prepared to affirm the great debt that we owe to others who have undergone this kind of suffering throughout the world? When we think this morning about the tiny nation of Nepal and what it means to stand for Christ in Nepal, when we let our minds roam around the globe and as we look at different places and think of the implications of faith, as a small group gathered the other evening to pray for the vast nation of China, God, I recognize that some of these loved ones are walking over spiritual and theological terrain that so far many of us have never faced. But we may be called to face it. I mean, after all, what your president just said is true. The Jesus film is being shown in high schools all across Russia. But in the land of the brave and the home of the free, to stand and pray at a flagpole in the middle of the schoolyard may get you bundled into a police car. What happens? Where do you think the battle is going to be in the next 25 years? Maybe God is preparing the saints out of the Eastern Bloc, out of their experiences of suffering, out of their discoveries of God, to write the theological books for a coming generation, to write the great missionary epistles for a coming generation. In the second century, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna—you remember him from church history—was brought before the proconsul, and he was commanded to offer incense to Caesar. "'Take the oath,' said the proconsul, "'and I shall release you. Curse Christ!' And Polycarp replied, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they tied him up to a stake, and they burned him. 1729, Marie Durand, imprisoned, along with other Huguenot women in the Tower of Constance in southern France. You can go there today and see it. The charge, they refused to renounce the worship of the Reformation. She was 15 years old. Three years later, they took her brother and they hanged him at Montpellier. In 1745, she was offered freedom if she would agree to renounce the faith of the Reformation. She refused all such offers. She remained captive for 38 years, from the age of 15, 38 years in the Tower of Constance, for one reason, to resist him firm in the faith. She resisted the temptation to despair, to suicide, and to betrayal. And when you visit that tower there in southern France, you will find a stone coping which surrounds a hole in the floor. And around the opening is one word, resiste, resistance. Who's got the guts for it today? Am I a soldier of the cross? Ask yourself this. A follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Young people, there's a war on. 
take your place. Gracious God, hear the cries of our hearts as they come to you and be with us in the hours of this day. Write your word on our hearts and help us to live it out for the glorious sake of your wonderful Son, the Lord Jesus, who died that we might live. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.